Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-fiving friends. I am so excited that you are here today. As always, I have an amazing guest to introduce um, that I'm very excited for the conversation with. So today we're going to be talking with Cindy Simpson. She has 47 years experience in the addiction treatment field and has developed a number of programs for people in recovery. She's been doing inner child workshops for the past 20 plus years and has developed a program to guide women and men through a safe, gentle process during a two-day workshop using guided imagery and processing to find their inner child so they can reconnect with their feelings, memories, hopes, and dreams Um, they lost through active addiction or trauma so they can have relationships they want and live the happy, healthy lives they are meant to live. Cindy has a PhD, a master's in social work. She's a substance use disorder certified counselor and is a clinical supervisor. So she is a wealth of knowledge, but welcome to the podcast, Cindy. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So um, I kind of just want to start out with you sharing, um, you know, how you got into this work and um, we'll go from there. Okay. So I, I got into it. kind of through personal experience. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father was a raging alcoholic and my mother was a raging codependent. Mm. Um, her, she, she believed her job was to serve my dad. And part of that was having lots of babies. And I happened to be the oldest, excuse me. I happened to be the oldest of seven. And I knew from a very early age, that my job was to keep the family together. Mm. And my job was to be my father's punching bag and my mother's best friend. Mm. And so I learned um, I learned at a very, very young age uh, just to deal with my dad's feelings, to deal with, to deal with his anger, to deal with um, my mom's uh, unavailability, um, and the constant influx of, of feelings. And we had a rule in our house that the oldest boy and the oldest girl were responsible for anything that happened in the house, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, and the oldest child, which was me was, was responsible overall for everything. So I learned to be very controlling because I did not want to, um, I did not want to suffer the brunt of my dad's anger. Okay? Yeah. And that controlling turned into having no feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I just put them all away. And whatever dad said went, you know, my, my dream when I was little was to be a nurse. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That was not going to happen. Um, he didn't believe that uh, girls should go to college. And if they did, they needed to major in business. I didn't want to major in business. I wanted to be a nurse. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to get out of the house. Um, I learned at a very, very young age, uh, age eight, um, when I inadvertently took my first drink. um, And it was inadvertently. My my grandmother lived with us. And she was one of those great little old ladies from Pasadena (laughs) who had a bunch of little old lady friends that got together every Monday and played bridge. 
And they happened to be at our house one day playing bridge and they all met for lunch and they had these little tiny glasses of Mogan David wine <laughs> with their lunch. <laughs> and then they went into the living room after lunch to play bridge. And my mom asked me if I'd help clear the table. And I went in and they hadn't finished their glasses of wine, which seemed really odd to me because my dad never left an empty glass on a table. So I just finished off the glasses of wine so I could carry them in to the, to the kitchen. Seemed normal to me. And um, I didn't get drunk. But what I noticed that night when he started letting loose with the, the rage and, and the sexual abuse was that it didn't matter. And I connected that thought from that point out that is if I had alcohol, nothing that he did mattered. Mm. Um, and so that started me on that road of using and then uh, drinking and then using. And, uh, and that was kind of my path, you know, to losing all my hopes, all my dreams, all my plans. I just, mm -hmm. you know, I just became a human doing at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was no longer a little girl. That was the end of my childhood, you know, and I became a human doing anyway. So I got into recovery, um, very young at age 20, I came into recovery, not of my own doing, but thank God there was a power greater than me that I had no idea existed mm -hmm. that, you know, got me into it. And as a result of recovery, many years later, I found this little girl mm -hmm. through working recovery. And um, she restored me to sanity, she via the program, and I was restored to, to sanity and to, and to finding all those hopes and those dreams and all of that. And so when I got sober and found her, I thought there's got to be other people like me out there. Mm -hmm. And there was no inner child work at that time. It's, it's actually been almost 30 years that I've been doing this work and nobody was doing it at that point. And mm -hmm. so. I put together a program that I have, um, uh, you know, worked on for 30 years, just kind of refining, refining, refining to help people find that little person mm -hmm. and, and looking at when the trauma started, uh, when, when he or she got lost and um, helping them find that little person and incorporating them back into their lives, as well as shutting down the critical parent and mm -hmm. giving them back a parent that loves them mm -hmm. and, and, an, and an adult that loves them. Mm -hmm. So I'm of the, um, I'm at the belief that not only did they lose the child, but the parent inside of them, I'm of the belief that there are three parts of us. Okay. We have a parent and the parent is, I kind of, I tell them that the parent is, um, is a part of us that keeps us out of jail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a rule maker, right? But it's not a mean rule maker. It's, it's the part of us that, that says, you know, you don't break the rules. You don't speed, you pay your bills. You know, you live a, a healthy <laughs> life. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you're nice to people. You know, you don't, if you borrow something, you pay it back. You just do things right. Mm -hmm. And then you have the adult and the adult is basically the part of us that, um, that helps us do our activities of daily living, get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you go to school, uh, you go to a job, 
you know, all of those, you clean your house, Mm -hmm. all those activities of daily life. And then you have a child, part of you, which is the only part of us that has feelings, that has dreams, that has hopes, that has our memories. Mm. Okay. And so if we live in these houses um, or these families that are less than nurturing, the parent becomes a critical parent, the name calling parent, the one that's forever putting the child down and the adult down. Mm-hmm. So the critical parent gets real big. The adult kind of shrinks a little, generally not to the point where it disappears, mm-hmm. doesn't stand up for the child. Mm. So the child goes away, goes into hiding. Mm-hmm. So in this inner child work, we bring the critical parent back to the loving parent that just that just keeps you out of jail and helps you follow the rules mm-hmm. in a loving way. The adult comes back to normal size is a loving adult that helps you do your activities of daily living. And the child then has two parents, basically the adult, the mom and the dad that love you and help you grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have, you're then again in a healthy family. And you can make decisions that healthy families intuitively make. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I thank you so much for sharing your story um, and, you know, sharing kind of about how you got into this work. I think that, you know, so many things came up for me while I was hearing you talk when you're saying, um, you know, the trauma and how these, these people, like you stopped being a child. I think that that's often a lot more common than um, people like to talk about, or really even kind of realize that, you know, we are having to, in so many different ways, not even just with families that are experiencing addiction and in any form, but, um, you know, trauma is labeled very differently for everybody, as you know. And so I think that, this is something that needs to be talked about a lot more where we're addressing the fact that people did lose part of their childhood. Um, And, you know, this, I'm thinking about it in terms of kind of some clients I've worked with as well as my own personal experience. And a lot of us do in these really critical development times of, you know, child development, we are shifted into, like you were saying, kind of that adult role or like a parental role where we don't get to experience the um, things that we should, or they're, you know, we're shut down with our dreams. Like you were discussing with, you know, I wanted to be a nurse and that was absolutely not allowed. And then it was, okay, how do I survive? And you go into that survival mode and we don't, when you're in that, you don't really pay attention to the fact of, oh, I'm in survival mode. It's just, you're there. And so I think that you brought some really beautiful points. And I also love how you talk about these different parts of ourself. I think too, I'm like thinking about how I've seen that with a lot of the clients that I've worked with that really get into, um, you mentioned it as kind of the human doing, Mm -hmm. um, instead of the child. And I love that because I say, I talk a lot with my clients about how, um, we do go to this place where we're just like checking off the tasks on the to-do list Yes, and you're no longer living in a space where you're dreaming or you're working towards a goal. It becomes again, survival because that's what we know. And unfortunately that's what we become comfortable in. That's Um, right. So I think that that's really important what you brought up. Yeah. And one of the things that I recognize is that, so I was in um, recovery from my drug and alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. 
But my next drug of choice became work mm-hmm. because that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and that had been so drilled in me. My dad was in the Marine Corps. Mm. He was a career Marine. Mm-hmm. And that was the only honorable mm-hmm. thing to do was work. Right. And so I worked like I drank mm-hmm. to the exclusion of everything else. And I ended up having an intervention done on me for codependency. Mm. And I was floored, mm-hmm. you know? And that's when I really got serious about doing the inner child work, when I realized how detrimental work could be to people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And expanded, you know, my view of doing the inner child work and and my own inner child work too, past just drugs and alcohol, like you said, mm-hmm. all these other areas, mm-hmm. you know, that and opened it up to, it's not just drug and alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, it's food, it's it's um, it's religion, it's work, it's shopping, it's you know, on and on and on and on and on, mm-hmm. whatever it is that becomes bigger than you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really big misconception about addiction in general is that it's tied to the substance that somebody's using, or it's tied to the alcohol, or it's tied to you know the sex or shopping or whatever it is. But it's not. And we know that very much in kind of the more clinical world that, and, you know, this is something that we teach a lot of, um, it's really the thought pattern behind it. It's the thought pattern behind the behavior is that obsessive thought and those intrusive thoughts. And so it is easy to, um, if you're not doing that work and having that strong program and, you know, going and doing the inner child work and these things, then it is easy to shift that addiction to, you know, work or whatever you're saying, exactly like you were talking about that cross addiction comes into play. Yeah, it really does. And it's, you know, it's, to me, it's really sad Mm -hmm. that codependency still gets such a bad rap. Yeah. And that people still don't want to recognize that as a real thing. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into that a little bit. What for our listeners that, you know, we hear the word codependent a lot, but truly what is, let's explain kind of codependency a bit. Okay, so I'm going to give a real lay definition. Mm-hmm. It's the inability inability to maintain a functional relationship with yourself or others. Mm-hmm. That's the real lay definition mm-hmm. where we place a reliance on people, places, and things to define us. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that so that that covers everything. You know, we're not we're not enough. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, we don't believe that we're enough. And we look outside of ourselves to define who we are. Yeah. Now it's it's a lot deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that makes it really kind of easy. Mm-hmm. Who's more important in your life than you are? You know, we yeah. look around who's more important or what's more important <laughs> right. than you are. And that and and everybody who is codependent really kind of knows who's more important or Mm -hmm. what's more important. Yep. And it's scary to look at it because if I give them up, what's left? Mm -hmm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Because you're gone. You know, your inner child who really is your most important, the most important piece of who you are is gone. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the people that I work with, that's the key issue is their codependency. Yeah. You know, and that's why, you know, that's kind of 
the group I focus on without talking about it until mm-hmm. until they come into and until they're in the inner child workshop. And then we start talking about, you know, the codependent part of it. And then they get it. It's like, oh, that's that's their aha moment. Mm-hmm. You know, when they start talking about mom, they start talking about dad, they start talking about a brother or sister, they talk about work, they talk about food, they, you know, they talk about whatever it is that they that they're terrified to give up mm-hmm. you know, or that has treated them so badly, including food or work or sex or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I appreciate that. I think that, um, like you said, codependency still gets a really bad rap, but I think it's a lot more prevalent. Um, especially I think with COVID people were really seeing, especially with, you know, um, those that were a bit more codependent with work are really noticing kind of the, the changes that have to occur and what that looks like and how it can feel like a really big, like you said, loss of identity. Like you don't even know there's nothing left. And so it's kind of this place where you're redefining. And, um, and I hear like, what you're saying is that, you know, this is really where the inner child work is really important and impactful because it helps you get back to those emotions and those dreams and those exciting things that, you know, we do experience when we are a child. Yeah, it really does. And, and, you know, in doing so much of the inner child work that is done today is done through talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that works as well as the guided imagery Mm -hmm. um, where people really will allow themselves to go a lot deeper and Mm -hmm. they can see and feel things that they didn't know were necessarily there, mm-hmm. um, which has been really kind of exciting. And um, they can see that little child actually in the moment. Mm. You know, I like I for instance, I start off with them going to the mm. delivery room when they were born mm. and actually getting to see who was there and what the looks of, on the faces of the people that were there and who named them and what the sense of the feelings were in the room and, you know, all of that. And for a lot of people, that's a, a real awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and they understand that they're not the cause of the problem, mm-hmm. you know, that it didn't start with them. It came before them. Mm-hmm. And there's some real relief that, that they're not the cause. Mm-hmm. They're not the blame. Right. You know? And it's way before them. You know, this is a generational curse. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with them. And that's where the healing starts. And I don't believe you can talk your way into that. You have to see it. And yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think too, like you were talking about kind of um, the idea of like the parent and the adult in, in the parts of us. And if you think about too, if we tie that a little bit differently, I always look at it as like the ego, right? Like our ego blocks that piece because our ego's job is to keep us safe. And so, you know, when you're just doing talk therapy, it's really hard to get into some of those, you know, there's a lot of, a lot going on in your subconscious in those emotions that stuck there, those, you know, patterns, tendencies, like we're talking about that isn't accessible if you're just sitting there talking. So that's kind of I love that you bring in this guided imagery and bring people to that place because, like you said, it is a place that they can kind of see that 
first of all, they're not there to be blamed, but also can really access something that we've probably never really thought about. You know, and when you said that, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, okay, huh, what would, you know, like, what would mine look like? And how would I kind of see that? And, um, and it's, it is interesting to think about and think about, you know, even like the, the tension that occur can occur with naming, um, you know, it's, it's funny to think about my, um, husband's family, they always talk about, uh, one of their daughter's middle names is Caitlin. And and obviously my name is Caitlin. And so, um, she had a very specific way she wanted to spell it. And she, um, was not in the room when the dad was spelling it on the birth certificate and he spelled it totally wrong. And there's still tension. She's 20 now. And there's still tension about, you know, how the middle name is spelled. And so, um, it's just funny. I mean, like even bringing some humor into this, but again, like you can see that that's something that, you know, she may have experienced or felt without consciously really being aware of that. Um, so it's powerful to go back and look at something. Cause too, I think, um, there's this kind of working in kind of like the holistic field, as well as a traditional counseling field and bridging those two, I've seen a lot of this back and forth. And and I guess this happens a lot in traditional counseling as well, where people have different opinions about if it's important to go back to, um, you know, times of the past or being that young. Cause we talk about like, oh, well, there's not memories of being that young and, you know, of, oh, your first memories develop around three, but the truth is that your, your brain, like you are already making memories when you're like in the womb, because you're already having those neural connections that, that, um, you know, those firings, those patterns, all this different stuff. So, um, I think it's surprising what people can actually remember as well as truly sometimes it's not that conscious memory. Like we're talking about, it's more that feeling and that you weren't (laughs) fully aware of. So I think, you know, that's really powerful to, um, to start with that. Right. And what I do is I, we actually go back and pick up five kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the, um, the infant, the toddler, the school age kid, the middle, middle school kid and the high school kid. And then at the end of picking up all five of those, then I unite them all into one. Wow. And that one is united then with the person. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do that then is when feelings come up, they're able to identify what age the child is when they're having a temper tantrum or when they're down or whatever, so that they can work appropriately with that child when it Mm -hmm. makes sense to them. And they're not saying, I don't know what's going on. Well, which child is having the problem? I love that. I, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's really powerful to look at because um, too, you know, we talk a lot about, um, in the addiction counseling world, how, when somebody starts using a substance, they're emotionally stunted at that age. Right. And there's, is a lot of back and forth about that. Cause people don't like to hear that. That's a hard thing to, um, to address, to believe. But I think with what you just said, if you can identify, you know, what age that, um, emotion came from, or the kind of that pattern of behavior started, it is yeah. so much easier to say, oh, okay, I'm not a 27 year old adult having an eight year old tantrum. It's my eight year old inner child. How would you work with an eight year old to deal with yeah. that? Yeah. And wow. they love that. They loved it. It's like, they're not, then they're not beating themselves up. Like you said, Yeah, it's like, okay, I get this, mm-hmm. you know, I get this. And so it's, you know, they really like that and it makes it so much easier for them. It's like, mm-hmm. and then when they, I also do well child checkups mm-hmm. once a month for X number of months 
um, with the groups. Okay. Okay. Um, And so they're able to report in if they had a tantrum Mm -hmm. or if they were feeling really sad, what age group it was. I mean, we can work through some of that to help them identify more quickly and then what to do about it. Mm-hmm. If they want to participate, that's an option. Right. That, you know, that's an option. And usually people participate for about three months mm-hmm. and then they feel like they've got it. And then about the six month point, they want to, they want to do it again because mm-hmm. something's come up, which is fine. Yeah. You know, I'm available, but that. it gives them some, um, some sense that they've got a, a backup if something comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then I do. I also um, offer, and this is free. Just this is just what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a um, a weekly CODA meeting that's mm. specifically for people that have gone through the inner child workshop. Awesome. And I do that um, because it's not it's not a standard CODA meeting. Mm-hmm. In that, if anything, if anybody has a question, they can ask it during the meeting, and I'll answer it. Perfect. Because for everybody. Yeah. And for our listeners, I don't know, CODA is Codependence Anonymous. Um, yeah. So it's a similar format to like Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Cocaine's Anonymous, all those things, but it is really powerful um, and a great resource too. If you're kind of listening to Cindy and I chatting and you're thinking, hey, I think I might be struggling with some things about codependency. Um, that's a great place to kind of go to learn a bit more about that. Right. And if you go to um, codependence.org, yeah, codependence.org. Um, they they list all the meetings um, around the world, basically. Awesome. Yeah, a good number of them are still on Zoom. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great place to look. Um, and I think that's really powerful, like you said, that you kind of go in because, um, like you were saying earlier, you know, you start to talk about that codependency once they're kind of in the workshop. And so yeah. um, that resource that you're, you know, adding for them is is probably more impactful than most people are are truly realizing. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. And I want to go back to something you said, you said, um, generational curse, mm-hmm. um, when we were talking and I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that of like, what is a generational curse? Okay. So, um, I, I really reinforced to, um, the participants is that none of this started with them, mm-hmm. that it started with, <laughs> We won't even know where it started, mm-hmm. you know, that but the story I tell, I tell to them to kind of give them a sense is, and I read this years ago in Reader's Digest and I just loved it. There were, um, it was around one of the holidays. I don't know if it was Easter. I don't know if it was Thanksgiving, but there were two women that were, you know, at somebody's house and one of the women uh, was getting ready to cook a ham and she cut off both ends of the ham, put it in a pan, put it in the oven. Mm-hmm. And the other woman said, why do you cut off both ends of the ham before you cook it? Well, that's the way my mother taught me. Okay. Why? I don't know. Let's go ask my mom. So they asked mom and mom said, it's the way my mother taught me. It's the way we've always done it. Well, they went and asked grandma. Grandma said, doesn't everybody cut off both ends of the ham? And, and the other lady said, well, my mom doesn't. Well, that's the way you're supposed to do it. That's the way my mother taught me. So great grandma happened to be still alive. So they went and asked great grandma and great grandma just looked her straight in the eye and said, I never had a pan big enough. Okay. <laughs> so it was one of those generational things that just got passed down mm-hmm. from generation to generation. 
okay, without any questions asked. Okay, so that's kind of a simplistic answer, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot like alcoholism or drug addiction, Mm -hmm. that it gets passed down from generation to generation through the genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it'll skip generations, sometimes it won't, Mm -hmm. but that's a generational curse. That's Mm -hmm. what it looks like. And so addiction of any kind is a generational curse. Mm -hmm. It can skip a generation. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Dependency is the same way. It's a generational curse. Oftentimes, um, molestation is a generational curse Mm -hmm. because it just gets passed down. This is the way we've always handled it. Mm -hmm. So I always let people know that you didn't start this. Whatever it was, you're not the first in your family to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what they see when they go back and they do their um, their inner child work. When they're going back in the guided imagery, they can actually see where if they think that they're the abuser, mm-hmm. they actually see where the abuse started mm-hmm. as far back as they as far back as they know. Mm-hmm. Okay. They may not see uh, great great grandparents doing it because they didn't live around great, great grandparents, but great grandparents, they might see that Mm. grandparents. They might see that happening to their parents, Mm. I think, but, or they may listen to what happened to their parents. Mm -hmm. So I tell them it did not start with you. Absolutely did not start with you. And do you feel that by doing like this inner child work and different things that they can break this generational curse. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think once you know better, you do better. Right. Yeah. yeah I like that. Yeah. I think um, one of the, you know, quotes that I really love is it's not um, that knowledge is power. It's the implementation of knowledge is power. And so I think that, um, you know, that is really powerful because I think sometimes when we look at generational curse, it's easy to say, um, oh, well, that's just how it is. That's the curse. But that's not necessarily the case when you start to do the work and really realize, oh, I'm a human. I have a choice. I, you know, can, you know, and even um, to, I think, even with addiction, a choice is a, a tricky word with addiction. Um, but cause you know, the society still looks at it very much as like that moral model, right. Where it's like, there's something wrong with the addict. They're morally choosing to do wrong or whatever it is, but the truth behind it is that more, um, you know, science brain-based idea of the genetics and how it is passed down. And that's very much how it's treated now. Um, but even with knowing that there is still the choice and the choice goes into that place of, okay, I have these genes. I have this addictive pattern. What is my recovery going to look like? Am I going to work a program? Right. So, um, pay, paying attention to that. And then too, with the, um, with the generational curse piece, I think that, um, it's easy to pay attention to, or it's not easy, but when we pay attention to really how we can break that curse, it allows us to kind of take back some of our identity and take back some of that um, control that we feel like we lost. Because a lot of times when we, if we're going back to kind of that idea, like we we're talking about, um, and you mentioned this, where you really held on to all the control um, because you weren't in that place of an inner child, we're allowed to take some of that back of, oh, I can have dreams and I am safe and I can work that in my identity of I have some control over what occurs to me now, even though I may not have before. 
So I think right. that's really important to look at as well. I do too. And, you know, I've been um, blessed enough to see a lot of people that have made that choice that have mm-hmm. come from really horrible places and have said, you know what, I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. No matter what, I'm not going back. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, and I was one of them. I'm coming up on 50 years sober this year. Congratulations. <laughs> and I mean, to me, it's like, okay, how did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then I have to say to myself, I got here because I stayed here. Mm-hmm. No, I did what I was supposed to do and not, not by myself alone. You know, I have a higher power that is amazing, mm-hmm. but I've looked at other people that have walked through things way worse than me mm-hmm. that are still here. Yeah. You know, men and women who have made that choice, mm-hmm. you know, to stay. Mm-hmm. And, and cause I, so I do believe it's a choice. Yeah. I've seen people that could have stayed that really kind of went back out on a whim. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and didn't come back. Yeah. You know, and that's the part that's scary. Mm-hmm. You no, know, you could have stayed. You could have stayed. Mm-hmm. Went back out and died. Yeah. For what? Right. And that is, that's a, a very tough reality. Um, I think that often we see uh, working in kind of mental health and substance abuse a lot. Um, I think that's one of the hardest parts about working in this field is, is. yeah, is, is that constantly you do see these people that put in the work and do the work and then they do go out on a whim and it's the last thing that they do, um, which is really is hard for us to process and hard to, um, kind of come, come to terms with, right. It's, we care. (laughs) We do. do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do want to say too, when we look at, um, placing blame, we've talked about, you know, how we're not to blame and, um, the person that is using or different things is not to blame. And I think blame is a tricky game because a lot of times we try to figure out where we can place blame. So how do you kind of talk with your clients about the idea of blame? Okay. So I, you know, I tell them that the the people that did things to you, they're responsible for their Mm -hmm. actions. Let them be responsible, Mm -hmm. but don't do the blame game. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're responsible for getting well, no matter what anybody does to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I was responsible. You know, one of the one of the things that I learned along the way was that I had to forgive my father, mm-hmm. not because he deserved it, right? But because I did. Mm-hmm. You know, because I did. I did not want to carry all that anger and all that hatred with me. Because mm-hmm. I know that if I did, I would go back out. Yeah. Eventually. Mm-hmm. Go back out. Yeah. I think um I try to live by that this kind of it's a quote, but it's the idea that um I think it's a it's a Buddhist quote. And um it talks about the idea that keeping the anger that you have towards someone else is like drinking a vial of poison yes. because it it doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts you. Yeah. And so what Cindy just said is so, so, so incredibly powerful. If you take nothing else from this episode, please take that of she realized she had to forgive her father, not because he deserved it, but because she did. And that is huge. That 
huge. I mean, that's a huge life altering, um, you know, perspective and decision to take. And that's powerful healing too. Yeah, it was. And I'll, I'll tell you the miracle of it. My sponsor was the one at that point. I had not talked to my dad for seven years. Mm-hmm. The first seven years I was sober. Yeah. And my sponsor said to me, you need to forgive him. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know if I can. Mm-hmm. He said, you have to. And so I went out. I was out of town on a trip. I came home. My husband picked me up at the airport, handed me the mail. And in the mail, out of the blue, was a Thanksgiving card from my dad, who I had not heard from in seven years. And the card said, um, happy Thanksgiving, love dad, and new wife, Donna. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) It was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And we got home, and I called him. I have no idea why. I called him, and I invited he and new wife, Donna, to have Thanksgiving dinner with us. Wow. We had always, my husband and I lived in Laguna Beach at the time, and we had always had um, an orphan Thanksgiving for all of our um, AA friends that had no place to go Hmm. at a potluck. And they accepted. And I got off the phone (laughs) and my husband said, what did you just do? Mm -hmm. said, I have no idea. I have no idea, Keith, but they're coming. Mm-hmm. And so they came. It was a very pleasant time. We were surrounded by other friends. Mm-hmm. Dad was not drinking at that time, mm. had not been drinking for a while. Everybody left, and I was out on the deck. Um, and he came out, and I said to him, I want to make my amends to you. And wow. he said, First, I need to make my amends to you. Wow. And it was a most amazing three hour conversation I had ever had with my dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the next um, 10 months, we had the relationship I always wanted. Mm-hmm. And he, then he died. Mm. Um, I mean, this is all God done, but I, I made my amends, you know, I forgave him, had no idea he was going to die. He came down. That was in November in May, he was diagnosed with um, stage four lung cancer from Agent Orange. Mm. And in October, he was dead. Mm. Had no idea any of that was going to happen. Yeah. You know, I made my amends because I deserved I deserved it. Yeah. And the fact that he made amends was a gift. Right. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, too, one of the, the things to keep in mind as well is, you know, as we're saying that you know, Cindy deserved it and that you deserve it. Not necessarily that other person keep in mind too, that other people may have different opinions about you having that conversation or making an amends with that person or different things. And don't let that, you know, sway your decision. This is very much that relationship with you because I had kind of a personal experience with that, where, um, I had somebody very important to me, um, And that was a big role model in my life. They were also an addict and there was a lot of kind of abuse and different things that occurred. Um, And then I had somebody else very important in my life um, tell me that they didn't understand how I could make amends to the, or not make amends, but how I could forgive that person. And they were angry with me for forgiving that person. And then, you know, you deal with that. But at the same time, again, I explained to them very similar to what Cindy said of, I'm not forgiving them for them. I'm forgiving them for me. So, um, you know, this is a very personal relationship to you guys. And 
you know, as we're listening to Cindy and have heard her story, it may be a little, um, you may kind of feel that tug inside you, which I think a lot of us probably do of, you know, how could she forgive her dad after all those things? And, um, but it's truly goes to a testament of, you know, how much this inner child work and how powerful the healing process can be and really what you can have. I mean, look at how many years in recovery and sobriety she's had and all the amazing work she's doing and offering to people even after kind of this story. And I think, you know, we sometimes give ourselves this out of this happened to me. Um, so this is what my life is going to look like. And right. that's nobody else gets to write your story. You, you get to write that story for yourself. You may have not had control of what originally happened because like Cindy said, those people that did something that was wrong, absolutely. They get to hold the responsibility for those actions, but you get to choose what you do with how you interpret that and how you process and heal and move forward. Absolutely. And the thing that's really interesting is, um, you know, I mentioned I have six brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and, um, when my dad died and when my mom died, because I made, uh, amends to her too. Mm-hmm. My side of the street was clean with both of my parents mm-hmm. when they died. I have no regrets. My brothers and sisters have regrets with both my parents. Yeah. And they're not at peace with their death mm-hmm. at all. And it really makes me sad. Yeah. It really makes me sad. That's their choice, but it right. does make me sad. Yeah. Because I'm at peace. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of, as we wrap this conversation up, I want to ask you, um, will doing this work prevent relapse? I can't say with certainty for a hundred percent. What I can tell you, you have a better chance of not relapsing doing this work Mm -hmm. because you have all of your kids Mm -hmm. in place and you have, you leave the workshop with a parent that's not critical an adult that is more loving and nurturing Mm -hmm. and all of your kids in one place. Yeah. So you have a better chance of not relapsing as Mm -hmm. long as you continue to work with them. Perfect. And, and you, and, and you implement a CODA program in your life. Mm -hmm. As long as you do that, your chances of obtaining and maintaining sobriety are good. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, if you're not in any other program except for CODA, you're in a much better place to, to have a healthy life. Absolutely. I love that. I think that's huge because I didn't want anyone to be under the misconception that, you know, that this is a quick fix because it's not, there's no such thing as a quick fix. Um, that we say, if your program gets sloppy or you're not working a program, you're already on your way to relapse. Yeah. So Um, But if you, like Cindy said, if you're working with those children, if you're paying attention to um, the work that you're doing, if you're implementing a CODA program or you're implementing implementing some sort of spiritual recovery or whatever it is, as long as you're working on yourself and doing something, you do have a lot less chance of relapsing in any way, whether that's alcohol, addiction, um, you know, negative thought patterns, whatever it is, kind of all these different things. So, um, we are humans, we're not perfect and we are here to do the work, right? It's not going to be comfortable, but it is necessary. (laughs) And it's got great rewards. It does. Great rewards. 
Absolutely. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all your amazing information with us. Um, Any final kind of nuggets of wisdom you want to leave us with? Well, I do have a website if people want to look at it. It's uh, givemychildavoice.com. Perfect. And that'll give them more information if they want it. And um, thank you so much for inviting me. This was really fun. Perfect. Absolutely. Um, And I will actually put um, Cindy's website in the episode notes. So you can just scroll down and click right on there um, and find her and go find out more information about um, her workshop and all of those things. So have a beautiful day. um, And thanks again, Cindy. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I appreciate it. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.